Hi, my name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. Hello, human friends and dog listeners. Woof to you. I wanted to talk today about dominance. So in the like three decades of life that I lived before becoming a dog trainer, I am pretty sure that I thought the word dominant was as much a part of dog training as boiling water was to cooking. It was just an essential part of the whole thing that was dog training. Dog training at that time being something that I think I thought of as, uh, you know, something that happens when you sign up for a class or you hire a professional and that dog training wasn't happening really outside of those times. It's hard for me to explain because the idea seems so weird to me now, but I thought of dog training like, you know, like dentistry happens at the dentist's office or if you're a dentist, dentistry just isn't happening. Anyway, now I uh, think about uh, training and learning differently, but you know what, maybe if you're a dentist listening to this, you would disagree with my <laughs> classification as, of dentistry being location and profession specific. Anyway, um, my point is the idea of dominance and dog training were two things that couldn't be unlinked. I took for granted that a big part of dog training is about people putting dogs in their place and making sure they understood that we are the boss and um, I I'm not sure I really thought about it that much, but this seemed somehow an undeniable fact about dog training. And, you know, actually sort of funny slash embarrassing story about uh, my my pre-dog training life. I was working as a reporter in um, like 2007. I pitched a story to my editor at the style section of the New York Times, which I wrote for pretty regularly. I pitched a story on people becoming dog trainers. I had done a few stories in my career on like people diving into their plan B jobs or into their dream jobs. Those kinds of stories always interested me and I'd always loved dogs. I had been told by this one dog trainer when I was growing up that maybe I could become a dog trainer one day and that sort of stuck with me and every now and then I would google like how do you become a dog trainer but I would always find these programs that seemed uh, a little bit like just like hey let's take your money. Like, wouldn't you like to work for yourself and work outside and work for dogs? You could become a dog trainer. And it wasn't totally clear to me what these programs were offering. It felt like they were offering some kind of machine I could step into. You go into this side of 
the machine a normal person and you come out the other side as a dog trainer with a treat pouch and a clipboard and solving people's problems in their homes. And I really wasn't aware that there were different approaches to dog training. I don't think science-based dog training was even a, a term I'd ever heard. It all just felt like a kind of opaque world that perhaps other people were getting more interested in because of the dog whisperer, aka Caesar Milan, who had a show called The Dog Whisperer, which uh, was on at that time, and he was super appealing. He had kind of an underdog quality about him and just seemed like a magician, and it, it felt like it would be impossible for someone to not love this this person and be in awe of his talents. I remember I had a boyfriend at the time and we had a dog and we watched a couple episodes of The Dog Whisperer and he just talked to everybody about what what an amazing what an amazing person this guy Caesar Milan was. He was just incredible. And everybody around whether or not they'd even seen the show, everybody was kind of in agreement. So I, I just assumed everybody was right. And I'm not even talking about conversations I had with dog owners or dog trainers. Caesar Milan, at least at that time, was just like a celebrity who was, we all just agreed as a society that he was incredible and lovable and wonderful. That's how I kind of remember thinking about him. Like we all just agreed he was wonderful. Like. Uh, I don't know, who, who else in our society could we all agree on? I don't know, like Malala Yousafzai, the Nobel Peace Prize winner. It would have been shocking to me at that time if anyone had said anything about him that wasn't just glowing. And Caesar Milan was all about dominance and showing the dog you are the alpha and how it's our fault that dogs think that they dominate us. Anyway, here's a clip I found from around that time. He's speaking to Marlo Thomas, and what I think is interesting is how Marlo Thomas kind of like, I don't know, just listen to her like, oh, uh-huh, right. Like she's just agreeing with him left and right, even though to me, like what he's saying seems like any reasonable person would clearly understand that <laughs> it makes no sense. But he has the, the ability to turn people into sycophants. This is from Vanessa. Hi, Caesar. I have a wonderful four-year-old Cavalier King Charles Spaniel who's very nice and obedient, but he just isn't much of a cuddler. I know he's not mad or unhappy, but I wish he were cozier. That's my favorite part of having a dog. Mm. Can I train him to be more affectionate, or is this just his nature? When a dog is um, uh, behave in a more dominant state, right? uh -huh. he controls, Right. Uh, they're not really good cuddlers. I see. You know, because they, a, a leader likes to be by himself. Mm -hmm. You know, so one of the things that we don't know about her is is the uh, how does she influence her dog to be in uh, in control of the relationship? Uh huh. You know, so a lot of times people they have a dog that they make them a dominant one. Those dogs don't like to cuddle. Oh. It's when you make them 
uh, going to a follower state, they want to be with the pack. Also, ignoring him can make him uh, uh, look for you more often. Oh, if, yeah. The, the more you look for them, the, the, the more not, they walk away from you. Oh, the one who's not cozy. Yeah, the one who's not cozy. Right. You know, we don't know the strategy that he has, right. that she has, right? Right. But one of the things that work for dogs, uh, 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 or for people who want their dogs to cuddle with them, is the more you ignore them, the more they gravitate to you. Now, there were definitely lots of people at that time who were trying to tell the general public, hey, this guy not only doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's really uh, doing a lot of damage to a lot of dogs and a lot of uh, dog owners out there. But their, their voices just were not super loud, at least outside of the world of, uh, of real dog trainers. And I was sort of interested in the idea of dog training, and here people were actually talking about a dog trainer as if he was a celebrity, so I was kind of interested in him, but not like in a, any kind of scholarly way. He was just definitely on my radar at that time, even though I wasn't really thinking about uh, becoming a dog trainer seriously at that point, and um, had not done really very much dog training uh, with any of my dogs at the time. And Caesar Milan, it seemed to me, really definitely knew what he was doing, and it was no surprise to me that people wanted to emulate him, but I was sort of aware it wasn't a regulated field, and anyway, when I was doing this article, I ended up talking to Parveen Farhoudi, who I have uh, since taken classes under. Uh, I did her her, uh, one of her week-long chicken training programs in 2016, which um, I just got so much out of. Anyway, she is a titan in the field, if you ask me, and at that point she was, um, I believe, the head of the Certification Council for Professional Dog Trainers, so I uh, called her up and asked her, well, I asked her a lot about a lot of things, but I was specifically asking her about bark busters and uh, after we talked on the phone I emailed her god this was 13 years ago this whole conversation is archived in my email inbox and it's like I was a, a very different version of myself when I was writing these emails to her so this is what I wrote to her Hey, Parveen, thank you so much for your time. Just to quadruple confirm, this is basically what we're saying about bark busters in the article from what you know about them. Does this seem accurate? I am pausing the reading of the letter just to explain that one of the things the article talked about was this company Bark Busters. And Bark Busters, by the way, is a chain. It's a, a franchise, dog training franchise, I believe. And uh, I should say, I really don't know very much about what kind of training they're doing these days or how the company has or hasn't evolved. So I uh, just wanted to be clear about that. Again, I'm reading a 13-year-old email here. Okay, back to reading the 2007 email. So anyway, I was basically fact-checking the article at this point, and this is what I wanted her to confirm was correct. All right, this is me reading the email again. Would you say that it is true 
Some trainers believe in behavior modification theories that relate to broader theories about the similarities in the ways humans and many other animals learn. The Barkbusters model is pared down with a method based on understanding canine psyche and communicating with a dog as a pack leader would. It doesn't involve the human-oriented behavior modification methods favored by many trainers. And by the way, now uh, I can say that when I wrote, you know, um, human-oriented behavior modification methods favored by many trainers, I think I, I had no idea what that meant. But I think I kind of thought, like, Caesar Milan is showing how dogs are dogs and people are people and we need to put them in their place and make them understand. And um, then there are these, this other group of people who actually think dogs learn and um, experience things in a way that is similar to how humans do and that there are parts of that kind of world that might influence training but um i think that that latter group seemed a little like uh i don't know just not something to be taken seriously i guess like again now it's crazy to me that i didn't realize how much science there is in all of this and the fact that there is research happening about how animals learn uh that is um, taken very seriously. I, I didn't know that the science of behavior was a thing. So this is uh, what Parveen wrote back to me day after Christmas, 2007. Let me illustrate my point this way. What you're asking is similar to asking whether the statement, quote, some people think the earth is round, but others take the view that it is flat, end quote, is accurate. The statement you have written implies that there are two reasonable, legitimate belief systems in dog training and that they hold the same weight. I would not agree that the statement is accurate because you are putting the legitimate field of behavior science on the same level as myth, misinformation, and marketing. Dog training is a science based in over 100 years of scientific method, study, and peer review. Barkbusters is a business model based on a very limited understanding of dog behavior and an interest in making money. I don't know the angle of your article, but if, for example, you were advertising for Barkbusters, then you might want to say that they offer a legitimate approach to dog training. However, I or any other person actually educated in behavior, behavior modification, training, and animal learning would tell you that dog training in the 21st century is considered part of the field of behavior science and that the accepted education expected from anyone engaging in the profession of dog training today is an, edu is an education in that science. Anything else calling itself dog training is nothing more than personal opinion. The idea that dogs behave just like wolves and live in the same social systems is not true. Continuous repetition of this myth will not make it true. Again, in dog ethology, there is no quote-unquote pack leader. There is no quote-unquote psyche in dog behavior. That term is specific to humans. There is no learning theory based in a human model. The laws of learning are universal to all species. This type of psychobabble espoused by some quote-unquote dog trainers sounds silly and confusing to me and to others trained in the field. The reality is that there are many people who have decided they are quote-unquote 
dog trainers. At this moment, to be a dog trainer takes no education, no certification, and no license. That is the problem. It leads to people taking advantage on many levels of an unsuspecting public that just wants help. As the profession matures, we hope to help the public understand that there is a tremendous difference between those who can help them train their dogs because they are educated in many areas of dog training and learning and those who think that dogs are simple and that you don't need to know anything specific except some old school myths. The independent standardized exams offered by the uh, Certification Council for Professional Dog Training, CCPDT, are major steps towards this understanding. Thank you for taking the time to make sure that you have accurately presented my view. I appreciate the trouble you are going through to be sure it is clear. I know it may seem long-winded at times, but this is a very complicated and delicate issue for people, and I hope to help you and your readers see the big picture. Thanks again, and best of luck with the article. Parveen for a hoodie. Ugh, I wish I had just published that email. She basically bitch slapped me in a way that I, I, I didn't even understand. <laughs> I literally forwarded the whole correspondence to my editor and was like, this sounds like a whole lot of insider baseball. Anyway, the resulting article that uh, was published, I now um, and am incredibly embarrassed about and <laughs> I can't believe, I mean, it just goes to show how you think about, I mean, here's this prestigious source, the New York Times, and yet they let me write this thing that is so ridiculous. And, you know, I guess in my defense, I, I just reread this old article and I, I feel like it must have been edited pretty heavily because some of this just feels like not quite my style but still like I put the content in this article and um, I mean at best I guess the gist of the article is like uh, more people are becoming dog trainers or wanting to become dog trainers and somehow that uh, I managed to make 2,000 words out of that um, I I, uh, I guess I will link to this in the show notes even though it's awful um, but anyway, at the end, I, the, the very last bit here, um, I talk about some different people becoming dog trainers and their, like, their, how they did it through uh, one guy goes to the Tom Rose School for professional dog trainers. Um, one person does a bunch of apprentices, apprenticeships. Um, but then at the end, Doug Roundtree of Louisville, Kentucky, uh, chose a much faster route. Two years ago, Mr. Roundtree, then an information technology manager, bought into Barkbusters, an international franchise with 245 trainers nationwide. The company gave him three weeks of intensive training, about 40 hours of homework, suggested he give a few free lessons, and then allowed him to open shop. I Just to pause to say, I do in the article... To my credit, talk about how it isn't a regulated field and um, that that could be problematic because basically anybody could be calling themselves a dog trainer. Okay, now I'm reading again. Uh, Barkbusters boast trainers who have given up careers as Fortune 500 executives, human genome scientists, and stockbrokers to join their ranks. But their method doesn't involve the animal behavior modification theories favored by many trainers. Instead, it is based on understanding what they call the, quote, canine psyche, end quote, and communicating with a dog as a pack leader would. Sadly, Barkbusters got a lot more play in this article than Parveen did. I mean, I just, I really just missed the story. 
it ends with a kicker uh, about a guy I interviewed earlier in the story who, after thinking about becoming a dog trainer, instead decides to become a tire salesman. So, uh, sorry, I, I got a little off track there. What I was starting to talk about was how uh, there were just certain concepts I took for granted before I became um, so deeply interested in dog training. And one of those was this notion of dominance. And then I would say, like, post going to Karen Pryor Academy, me. I mean, before that, like when I wrote that article, 2007, I did do things with my, my dog in the name of dominance and thinking that I needed to show him that I was the alpha. I would uh, do alpha rolls with him where I pushed him down on his side and held him down by his neck and like growled in his face. <laughs> My little like 18 pound Yorkie poo. Uh, I, um, I remember being told that I should give him guilt trips. <laughs> that, that was a good way to make him know I was I was disappointed and that I was the boss. I remember learning from the dog whisperer that it was important to not let him go through any doorway in front of me, that he would think he was the pack leader if he could go out in front of me and I needed him to know that I was the pack leader. Although this suggests that there are like doorways in the wild that the wolves are vying for access to. I don't know. And I certainly assumed that dogs who growled or pulled or whatever uh, had the problems they had because they thought they were dominant or were trying to dominate us or other dogs. But then I became one of these career-switching people who I had written about a few years prior, and uh, I actually learned about the science of behavior I learned to think about dog training in a completely new way and in a way that made so much more sense. I graduated from the Karen Pryor Academy in 2010. And if you had hit me up with the question, you know, do you believe in dominance theory for dog training at, at around that point, I, I probably would have said no, you know, dominance is not a thing. That the studies that were done that led to the modern ideas of dominance, or one, one study in particular, uh, the one where the, the term alpha dog was uh, coined. They were studying wolves who had been captured and were trying to survive in groups in captivity. Groups that were not necessarily familial and it seems like a bad idea to make sweeping judgments about an entire species based on what they're doing when they're stressed out and living in captivity with uh, folks they don't know. Since then, wolves have been studied much more extensively in their natural habitats, and uh, we think that they tend to live in kind of familial groups where there might be some kind of hierarchy, the same way there's a hierarchy in a family. But the, the top guy's method of controlling the others is not aggression and violence, because those are both very calorically 
expensive and potentially unsafe activities to engage in. So you're more likely to find these probably older leaders of these wolf families that are probably training their uh, their families using the same tools we use when we're trying to train dogs. Management, timing, rewards, good associations, encouraging behaviors that they like, not allowing a lot of opportunity for behaviors they don't like to occur, and uh, reinforcing behaviors or punishing behaviors with appropriate punishers and reinforcers with really good timing. These are my guesses. I really don't know that much about wolf behavior. Most dog trainers, however, will also point out that dogs are not wolves, that although, of course, they are the same species, they're separated by tens of thousands of years of evolution. There's strong arguments that dogs evolved to get along with us, and that studying wolves and their behavior is probably not the best way to learn about dogs. But I think it's so interesting that these these studies were done on wolves who had no choice about who they were with or their environment. And it's interesting that that fact didn't immediately appear to the researchers as something that could lead to what might not be behavior that you would see in the wild. I mean, you can imagine that any animal plopped down with a group of strangers in a situation they didn't choose in what might be a completely new environment with new challenges and uh, combine that with perhaps the recent stress of being captured. It would be like trying to make generalizations about human group dynamics solely based on watching episodes of Survivor. Animals behave differently when they have uh, more choices available. And a lot of the behaviors that people describe as dogs being dominant or trying to dominate each other or us, I now think of as behaviors that stem in fear and uh, can be usually addressed by changing associations and giving dogs choice. Now, after spending the last 10 years as a professional dog trainer, I don't think I would still say dominance isn't a thing. I still don't think Cesar Milan sounds like he makes very much sense when he talks about dominance, but I do think dominance exists, at least as a kind of broad term that we use to describe certain behaviors we can observe, because of course we can only guess how dogs are feeling. Those wolves who were being studied it's not like their behavior doesn't count as real behavior. They really were trying to vie for resources or maybe trying to make alliances or keep their territory. It's easy to see all kinds of human 
equivalence here in our behavior, isn't it? And I can believe that that resulted in one individual or groups of individuals trying to exert power over the other group. Not unlike something you might see on an episode of Survivor. Or in the Middle East. Or even like in a grade school. You know, any situation where individuals have been thrown together where uh, they haven't made the choice to be there. I think there's a natural tendency, probably in all animals or many species of animals at the least, to try to get power in certain situations. Look at the war-torn world we live in. But I think that could also apply to kindergartners. I remember in like first or second grade, there was a kid who was a bit of a bully and uh, my mom telling me, you know, you have to learn to deal with her because there's going to be lots of versions of her in your life down the road. And what's funny is now I think back about that and I think about wolves in captivity and I see a similarity, which is that neither I as a little kid nor those captured wolves exerted any control over the situation. I didn't have a choice about whether I was going to go to school every day to see this mean kid. And uh, the wolves were also, by definition, trapped. Now, as an adult, if I encounter someone who maybe has what could be called a dominant personality or a bullying personality, I can choose to not interact with that person. I'm not forced to go uh, sit next to that person at lunch every day the way I was before. And you know, there's actually a game we play with puppies called, uh, or not really a game, we call it the bully test. Uh, I think that term was coined by uh, Dr. Ian Dunbar, who started the Association for Professional Dog Trainers. But the bully test is if two dogs are playing and you are worried that one of them uh, is maybe being bullied, pull the potentially bullying dog away and see what, let's call it the the omega dog, (laughs) Uh, if the dominant one is the alpha dog, see what that other dog does. If the other dog sticks around or goes back up to the supposed bullying dog or doesn't go, does anything other than, you know, run to his human's lap or hide in the corner, you know that that dog is into it and uh, that the dog that seemed dominant is not being perceived as a bully, at least in that moment at that time by that dog. You give the other dog a choice about whether or not they want to be around the so-called dominant dog. You know, I don't know a whole lot about human group dynamics, but having worked with lots of dogs, both individually or with their humans or with groups of dogs, I think that dogs are happiest when they have some choice about where they're spending their time and with whom they're spending their time. So while I believe dominance may exist, there are a lot of reasons why I don't think it needs to be a focus of 
dog training or a focus of anyone's life with their dogs. Because are we putting dogs in our worlds? Are we forcing them into our lives? Uh, Well, yeah, in most cases, but we can arrange their lives, ideally, so that we are giving them what they need so that if they had a choice, they would continue to hang out with us. It was only really after I started seeing the world through through this lens of, uh, of uh, behavioral science that a lot of very libertarian ideas started to, um, I guess, appeal, appeal to me. A few years ago, I was listening a lot to an excellent podcast called School Sucks. And uh, one of the running themes in that podcast is about how school forces us into these unnatural situations, social situations, also unnatural learning situations. The modern schooling system wasn't really designed for the happiness and well-being and uh, intelligent education of the children. It wasn't designed to um, help them learn how to feel good in the world or make choices that are right for them. It's, uh, it's an educational system that was designed to produce good little workers who will show up on time and be good little citizens who believe their government is the best government. With our dogs, I think that part of the way that we can create worlds that they want to be in is by using positive reinforcement to encourage behaviors we like. We can give dogs control over their environment in this way. Oh, hey, if I behave in X way, I get something really great from the human, be that food or love or a walk or a great game of tug, whatever it is. But so much of good dog training is about helping dogs develop behaviors that are going to net things that they that they want, as opposed to forcing them to be in situations and then having uh, an or else clause all over the place, which puts us into the negative reinforcement quadrant of operant conditioning, which is what a lot of uh, dog trainers uh, are still doing. That's where they're operating. If you bark, then you get shocked. If you pull on the leash, then uh, you are going to get choked until you stop pulling on the leash. And perhaps not coincidentally, it's the trainers who are using those methods, I think, who are probably more likely to tell their clients that they need to dominate their dogs. And, you know, another problem I always think about with dominance as as a word, the, the way people throw it around, first of all, it suggests that there's some sort of like end peak result that, you know, eventually a dog has dominated his people or <laughs> dominated another dog and uh, 
that we need to keep that from happening. You know, what does that look like? What does domination look like? I, I don't understand how you could, you know, measure it on a scale or take its temperature or, or figure out its length. I mean, does a dog dominate the other being if, if the dog kills the, the other dog or the person or whatever? Is, is that domination? On, on some level, I think that you can spot what could be called dominance in most relationships of any kind do have perhaps one like dominant side. There's often one person who's more in control because they control the money or they control the space or, you know, between two dogs. Um, you know, I, I have a small Yorkie poo. In some situations, I think probably some people would call his behavior dominant. If uh, there's a ball around and a body of water, he is going to get that ball and <laughs> he is going to own that ball and we'll let you know about it. If uh, a dog he's never met comes into our home, uh, I can note the way he behaves there. But you know what? He is going to be a different dog when we're outside or when we're at someone else's place. Even if there's a ball around but there isn't a body of water, he then doesn't care so much about the ball. So there's a kind of fluid <laughs> bossiness, I guess, F fluid way in which in some situations it seems like he's trying to exert control or he has control. And uh, you can find that, you know, in pretty much any relationship. <laughs> I remember as a kid actually seeing my uh, third grade teacher at the supermarket and feeling like, oh, you know what? She can't tell me what to do here. It's kind of like that, you know, in the classroom, she was dominant. In the supermarket, she wasn't. Another thing that I think tends to get neglected when people are quick to assume that dominance is, a, is an important thing to understand when trying to understand dog behavior is that dogs play. And play is kind of like rehearsing possible things that could happen in life. Certainly you see this with kids playing house. And it's a way to problem solve, to experiment with different kinds of behaviors and feelings and actions. And with dogs, sometimes play can look like fighting. Same thing with kids. Think about tag or football or you know so much of play is like an organized form of what otherwise could really look like uh, violence and I mean sometimes it is violence like boxing wrestling you know I feel uncomfortable watching those kinds of sports because to me it no longer seems like make-believe if people might actually be getting hurt. Anyway, I suppose the takeaway on this point is that uh, it is completely normal for dogs to engage in vocalizations, to chase each other, to play tug with each other or with you. In a lot of play situations, it's normal for one dog to want to be on top. Then it's normal for another dog to want to be on top. And one of the reasons why at School for the Dogs we feel like it's so important for dogs to be able to have opportunities for safe 
play with one another dogs not just puppies but dogs of all ages is because they need outlets to be able to work out this kind of thing this kind of play is completely healthy and dog owners can learn what good play looks like so that they can encourage it when it's happening and stop it when it's not is one dog maybe trying to dominate another dog in that situation sure you might say that but only in the context of that game outside of that game things might be different there might be some other hierarchy and usually in good play there's kind of a uh, a taking turns of who might be what you call dominant it's like i'm it no i'm it you chase me okay now you chase me i want to be on top no i want to be on top That's kind of what good dog-dog play might look like. And every relationship is its own thing, just like you might behave differently around different people. You know, my dog has uh, two two good friends, two dog friends. I mean, he probably has more than that, but two of his main dog friends are um, Ginger, who belongs to our trainer, trainer Anna Ostroff and Gilby who belongs to Alex who also works for us and they both both Ginger and Gilby have spent a lot of time in uh, my apartment with Amos and um, they got they all got on really well Um, I mean Ginger and Gilby however when they're with each other and Amos isn't around they're a little different with each other than they are around him I think they're a little looser, maybe a little bit more goofy. Uh, I think that they enjoy coming over to my apartment, and uh, I think they both really like Amos. Gilby will like paw at Amos in a kind of sweet way, and um, Ginger likes to kiss him. But you know what? Ginger stays a little bit lower to the ground when Amos is around. And Gilby seems very aware always of where Amos is in the room. I think he gives them information with very subtle body language that this is his place and this is his stuff and these are his people. And that doesn't mean he's guarding his food bowl or not letting anyone near his toys. But you know, I've known him for a long time now and uh, I can kind of read in these little subtle ways when he's sort of saying, yo, this is my place. And being the well-socialized and observant dogs they are, socially savvy dogs that they are, Gilby and Ginger, Amos doesn't have to give this information in a very harsh way. He can keep it low-key and subtle. But you know, I don't let Amos hang out with puppies because puppies don't pick up on his, uh, hey, leave my stuff alone cues. They just don't have all of that social learning under their belt that an older and wiser dog like Ginger or Gilby has. And in those cases, if uh, a puppy gets into his space and isn't uh, heeding his, frankly, polite warnings, Amos will exhibit behaviors that someone might call dominant or alpha. But I see my role as his uh, human (laughs) to, um, I I think my role is to help 
control his world so that I'm not putting my 15-year-old dog in situations like that. And if I am in a situation with any kind of thing, be it a a dog or whatever else that I think might make him uncomfortable, I'm going to try and minimize that exposure and create as much of a good association as I can using uh, tools available. That might mean, you know, physically keeping him apart from something else by having him tethered or in a bag, uh, trying to create good associations using food rewards, etc., etc. Now, like I said, every relationship has some kind of hierarchy, and uh, one reason why I don't worry too much about whether or not my dog is trying to dominate me is because I'm pretty sure I'm the dominant one and I also think he's actually okay with that uh you know why am I the dominant one because I'm the one who's controlling where he lives what he eats where he sleeps how he spends his time where he spends his time with whom he's spending his time I'm the one in control but I think I am creating situations where he's benefiting from my control and wouldn't it be nice if we were all in relationships with dominant people or institutions whose uh, interest was uh, us feeling good that wouldn't be so bad like in a workplace situation you want to be making choices that will be positively reinforced and not doing things because you're worried something bad will happen if you don't. Negative reinforcement. It would be nice if uh, in our relationship with the government, which generally has power over the individual, that if uh, we were doing things because they were going to result in good things for us and not, you know, paying taxes because we're going to go to jail if we don't. There are also people who will argue that uh, dogs aren't dominating us or trying to and that we're not dominating them, that we're equal, that we uh, are controlling each other and benefiting from each other. I could also imagine the argument that we are the real wusses in the relationship, that dogs are dominating us all the time because, um, you know, we are the ones paying for them, providing them with everything they need, and uh, also picking up after them when they poop. I wanted to end the episode with uh, just a passage from a book by the ecologists Ray and Lorna Coppinger. The book is called Dogs. I love that title. That's the whole, whole title, just Dogs. They do a great job here of talking about these different kinds of uh, structures of our relationships. This is a part that's uh, in the introduction about halfway through. Populations of animals can be studied in different ways by different ists. When ecologists speak about how people and dogs relate, They use a different vocabulary than when economists, say, explore economic questions of how they relate. People tend to assume that the relationship between people and dogs is good, of mutual benefit to both species. People supposedly gain value from owning a dog, or perhaps the dog does valuable work for them, and they reward it by vaccinating it against disease, protecting it from harm, 
and providing food and reproductive opportunities. But ecologically, the idea of mutual benefit ceases to be an assumed truth and raises the questions, is the symbiotic relationship between humans and dogs really mutualism? What else could it be? The ecologist defines four basic symbiotic relationships. Mutualism is only one quarter of the story. Commensalism is a symbiotic relationship that is good for one species but does nothing for the other. There are millions of dogs around the world scavenging the dumps of villages. They get a food benefit from living close to people while the people get little or no benefit from the dogs. Some people would contend that the scavenger benefits the village by cleaning up the refuse. In that case, rats and raccoons should be given similar credit. There are so many dogs making a commensal living around civilized people that we think villages may well have been the original inspiration for wolves to become dogs. Mutualism is the relationship assumed to exist now between dogs and people. The first thing people point to to support this is that dogs pull sleds, herd sheep, or guard horse houses. With our varied experiences working with dogs, we wouldn't deny this, but others would say that it is cruel to have a dog pull a sled, implying that it is not to the dog's benefit. Certainly, and by definition, if there is a mutual benefit, it has to benefit both parties, not just one. A major portion of this book is devoted to dogs that work with people, and we will demonstrate why some of this work is mutual and some is not. Parasitism defines a relationship between two species living together where one organism obtains a benefit at the expense of the other. It may be unpopular, but we are going to make the case that the domestic house dog may have evolved into a parasite. It costs more than it gives back. Further, we postulate another relationship, a subcategory of parasitism called doulosis. Doulosis is enslavement where one species captures workers from another species. We are resigned to the fact that we will probably lose this argument, but we bet we lose it because people just don't agree with us and not because someone can provide data to the contrary. Amensalism. Amensalism. A-M-E-N-S-A-L-I-S-M. There is another way we might lose the parasite argument. The fourth form of symbiosis is amensalism, a living together in which one species hurts another, often unknowingly and without benefit to itself. If we can show that pet dogs are in a peculiar position where they are genetically trapped in small inbreeding populations called pure breeds that will eventually destroy them, it should be clear that it is bad for the dog to be in this relationship and not particularly beneficial for the, hu for the human. The presence of parasitism or immensalism should not be taken as grounds for the elimination of dogs in our lives. Rather, the facts should be used as starting points for change and moving toward real mutualism. Excellent book. The famous ecologist who wrote it with his wife, Lorna Raymond Coppinger, died a few years ago. He was a professor at Hampshire College. And uh, shortly before he died, though, he released two other books, one called What is a Dog? Another one called How Dogs Work. I also highly recommend both of those. They cover some similar areas as dogs, which is uh, more of a, a classic, uh, but the newer books are a little bit easier to read. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed some of my thoughts on dominance. I would love to know yours. Have your thoughts on 
dominance evolved or changed as you've gotten to know your dogs or think about dog training, let me know. I would love to hear from you. Annie at schoolforthedogs.com. I wanted to close out today uh, with an answer to a question a, a client just wrote in to me. Uh, this comes from Lee, who is the owner of an adorable doodle named Pizza. <laughs> Lee wrote, uh, we have a group of dogs that we play with off-leash at the park, and Pizza does a great job playing with them except for one thing. He steals their bowls and plays keep away. I should mention it is usually water bowls, silicone or plastic only. If someone brings a more permanent bowl like we have at home, he doesn't touch it but sometimes this extends to something else he is excited by that's been left on the ground. We get the sense he knows he is taking something he shouldn't, put, uh, he shouldn't, but the process of getting it back from him has become a game of keep away for him, and it's resulted in him destroying a number of water bowls and us having to replace them. All that to say, we are trying to figure out a new behavior or behaviors we can teach him to at least be able to get it back from him if he takes it, and even better, help him to stop taking these items and running. So without knowing all the details, I have three quick tips for you, Lee. First, I would practice drop it. Practice drop it at home before you start uh, upping the difficulty and doing it outside and in moments of great exhilaration like at the dog park. It's such a super easy thing to teach. You're gonna say the word drop it, then you are gonna drop some t treats, uh, and eventually pizza is going to learn to open up his mouth in order to get those treats whenever you say drop it and is going to end up dropping whatever is in his mouth. I have a podcast episode and a blog post all about teaching drop it and come using classical conditioning and I will link to it in the show notes. I would practice drop it all day every day. It's not hard to practice and it can be something that is hugely beneficial. You don't just have to practice with treats. You can practice uh, giving him toys when you say drop it too. I'll talk more about that in a second. But my second piece of advice is that you get one of those silicone water bowls or food bowls and put them around the house and make them super boring. I mean, you can f use them for food, sure, but you want him to be like, oh, these things are around all the time, not just like this is a, this exciting thing that I see when we're at the dog park and everybody seems very excited when I take it. I don't know whether or not he thinks he's doing something that he shouldn't, but I am guessing that the behavior of running around with another dog's water bowl has been reinforced in some way, whether that's because it's just really fun to do it or he enjoys the attention that uh, he gets from everyone around him when it happens, even if it's uh, what might be called negative attention. We actually sell collapsible slow food bowls in our online shop storeforthedogs.com but I also want you to head over to store for the dogs because we have just added all or I think almost all of the products made by the company Westpaw which is a Montana based company that makes these really great rubber chew toys for dogs they use this special rubber called Zogoflex that's like extra squishy and it's like filled with air dogs love the toys that are made with this stuff. They float, they're super sturdy, and they come with a guarantee. So if your dog ever does destroy it, you can return it to Westpaw and they'll replace it. So I'm a huge fan of the Zogoflex toys and I think that getting a toy like this, or really toys, you know, I want you to be offering him toys that are even more fun than those darn 
silicone collapsible water bowls. And the Zogaflex toys are similar enough that I think he's going to be into them, but also different enough that I think he'll be able to differentiate which toys are toys and which are bowls, especially if you make it so that these uh, rubber toys, these Zogaflex toys, only come out when you are at the park. You can like designate a special park toy. There's actually one toy in particular that they make called the Zisk, Z-I-C-S, I'm sorry, Z-I-S-C, flying disc, the Zisk flying disc <laughs> uh, that Westpaw makes that I think would be particularly good because it is very much like a water bowl in its size and shape, but I think Pizza is going to enjoy chewing and tugging with this thing more than he is with a regular water bowl. And this toy is something that I would get a few of so that you can, um, you know, play tug with him and then say your say drop it. But rather than dropping treats, some of the time, what are you going to present? Another zisk or maybe even two zisks. So you can practice drop it by doing a kind of trade. Hey, when I say drop it, uh, you, if you let go of this one zisk over here, you're going to get two zisks over here from my other hand. So hope that helps. Keep me posted about how Pizza does practicing his drop it and playing with his new toys. Lastly, just wanted to let you know that we have just published our self-paced online courses. You can find them at schoolforthedogs.com slash courses. We've worked really hard on these digital programs. The response has been really overwhelming and wonderful, and it's just been really exciting to work with the dog owners all around the world who are starting to do our courses. We have a lot of other great stuff to come in the digital realm that we are working on putting out. Can't wait to share all that with you guys too. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on uh, Instagram so that you can be in the know as we continue to try to, to I don't know, what are we doing here? <laughs> to try and make the world a better place for dogs and uh, the humans who love them. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com.